0: Hi, Pastor Mike Fabares here. In August 2024, you're invited to join me on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. Delve into God's Word while taking in the rugged
1: beauty of the Alaskan coast. Visit focalpointministries.org Alaska. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares gives us a bigger view of God. I need to carefully respond to God's self-revelation.
0: God's self-disclosure, of God saying, this is who I am, this is what I want you to do, here's how I want you to live. Now think about all of those things he testifies to in the giving of the law and the giving of this worship center.
1: Was the last time you stopped to marvel at god's global plan for redemption a plan that started in a small corner of the world and expanded to the ends of the earth to include you well today on focal point pastor mike fabares is sharing an inspiring message about how we should respond to god's revelation and our part in his amazing plan i'm dave drewy and here's pastor mike with the conclusion of a message called the places of worship for israel
0: God recognized that there was in the intention of the Abrahamic covenant as we started in our study, we saw was to have Abraham and his descendants be a means through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. Not just because they were good guys infiltrating the planet, but because through Abraham would come this one who would redeem them, be the ultimate high priest that would give everyone who would respond in repentance and faith as God called them to a place of dwelling with God. I just want us as Christians to be thankful for that, as Gentile Christians to be thankful for that. So jot it down that way if you would. Number two, we need to gratefully ponder, I put it this way, God's borderless redemption. He's not localized in Israel. As a matter of fact, the whole tenor of where this is going in the book of Acts is to go to the Samaritans. We're gonna see that in the next chapter and then to the Italians, to the Romans in chapter 10. The continual, concentric, impact of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. God's plan moving outward should make those on the outside who become insiders very, very grateful. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 11. Remember therefore at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, right? You're not descendants of Abraham. Called the uncircumcision, a very dismissive and pejorative way by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Oh, so many parallels there too, even with the way that that rock in Daniel 2 was a rock that was not cut by human hands, the, the kingdom of God, it's something so much deeper than what you can see in someone's pigment in their skin or their DNA or, the, you know, the, the signs of their covenant promise of circumcision or anything. that Like the temple itself, the realities are the unseen things. And yet we get so fixated on the seen things. Nevertheless, you Gentiles, remember, this is what I want you to do with this week, verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth, from the nation and all the blessings of Israel. You were a stranger, didn't even know the covenants of promise, these, these guaranteed oaths of God about what he would do for the good of those penitent people. Having no hope, that's the problem when you're outside and without God in the world. But now, man, if you could just catch this, this would fuel your worship this week. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verses 14 through 18, we ought to be getting along and there were problems in the early church with the Jews and Gentiles getting along and all the things, the vestiges of all the practices of the Jews. So he addresses that. But now get to the heart of this, right? Verse 19, so many good things dovetail together in this passage. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're not outsiders. You, you Gentiles on the other side of the planet, you fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now here's this analogy not just a family, look, it's a, it's a structure built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This analogy now of a building. What kind of building? Well, a building where you got a cornerstone where it's not gonna work without this person, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now look at how it shifts. Now verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, what? A temple, whoa, that structure, that, like that building. And the reality of it is us without the trappings and the pillars and the brazen altar, and the, and, and the candelabra, and the showbread. It's like, we're it now. In whole, the whole structure joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him. Look at verse 22. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, the reality of that unapproachable God in the glorified Christ is going to rule in the middle of the new Jerusalem, But until then, like Paul, through a glass dimly, we experience the reality of relations with God through the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit now, interacting, relationally connecting with us, dwelling in us, that picture of God's presence among us. That makes you more sacred than a building that was vacated by the glory of God when Christ died on a cross and the veil was ripped. And here they are as gatekeepers of this building, And a lot of things, by the way, changed between 33 AD and 70 AD and the practices and some of the extra biblical writings about the weird things that were going on and people recognizing this is not the same anymore. Well, it wasn't the same anymore because the spirit of God went from that building, at least in the representation of what God wanted to rightly do in that building with all the perversion around it, and he took his spirit and he brought it upon his people and he said, here's my temple now. And here's a couple passages for you. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 3 says we as the church now become this temple of God. And you should feel special about that. You want to feel good about being an outsider brought in? How in are you? Here's what what the scripture says. It's as though now you are the temple of God and here's the threat. Anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. I know we're much maligned in our world, right? We're the scum of the earth as Paul put it and increasingly so in American culture today. You and I, the fundamentalist, bigoted, narrow-minded Christians. The Bible says those who are going after us, like in the Old Testament with Israel, you're the apple of my eye. God takes it personally when people attack the church. And then even more so, you go home, get in your car, leave the parking lot, do your thing this week. As you sit there at your desk, think about this. 1 Corinthians 6 says your body itself is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Corporately, 1 Corinthians 3. Individually even, 1 Corinthians 6. Because God's Spirit dwells in you. There's a lot of Responsibility. Now, here's the next phrase. You know this phrase if you know the verse. Therefore, glorify God with your body. It's a call to not sin, to sin with your body. And he says, listen, you, God dwells in you. Who? In who? In the people, as Isaiah put it, of the coastlands, right? He may have been thinking about, you know, I, I don't, Italy and Spain, but think about the idea. We're so far on the other side of the planet, 2,000 years later, and right now, there's more significant, sacred interaction with the Creator and the transcendent God with you sitting in your car at lunch, reading your Bible and praying, than was anything going on over the shoulder of the Sanhedrin. That's an amazing thing. You ought to ponder that. You ought to gratefully ponder that, that the greatness and glory of God not only went to Haran and, and, and went to Ur and, and Egypt and Midian and Sinai, but Orange County in a parking lot in your workplace. That's That's an amazing thing, which I hope gives you something to fuel your worship this week. Well, it's all started with a concern about the temple, which of course got him to think about the construction of this worship center. First of all, go back to now Acts chapter 7, and let's get to the beginning of the passage that we read, verse 44. It's all started with a discussion about the worship center. The worship center in the Old Testament, when it was given, was in the desert to Moses in a tent. It says, our fathers, look at verse 44, had the tent of witness, interesting phrase, the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. I already explained that when we first read it, right? God gave him a pattern in Exodus, and he came down and constructed it according to the pattern, exactly. He didn't say, well, I don't think that room's too small, or I think the curtain should be over here. I think we should orient it toward the north and not toward the east. that's That's not what he did. He had to do it exactly as was prescribed. And that worship center was called the Tent of Witness. Why? Because God was testifying in many different ways. In one way, in that even the temple structure itself, or I should say the tabernacle structure itself at this point, was saying things about God, saying things about what God was doing, saying things about God's holiness, saying things about God's otherness, saying things about God's redemptive plan, saying things even in the sacrifice about the gravity of our sin. All that was being said, and it would be said for centuries through the practice of the liturgy of the temple. More specifically, and probably what people thought of when they heard the word tent of witness, was the tablets of witness, the the Ten Commandments. Here's God's moral law. First thing we have in terms of written revelation came from the finger of God on Mount Sinai, and here's the rules. And, And he says, I want you to put them in that box, and it's going to be in the center of this room, and it's going to have these angels on the top of it, and all of this is going to remind you that I have spoken. It was a testimony. To look at the The echoes, the pre-echoes, if you will, of Christ in the tabernacle. The pictures of redemption in the temple. I mean, there's so many great little books that remind us that this wasn't just a place to hang out and sing our worship songs. This was a picture of God testifying to the world of the problem of sin and the solution that would come in the Lamb of God. It's helpful, it's encouraging, enriching. I would spend some time looking at those books. And I would remind you that whenever... You have a testimony of God, a self-disclosure of God, whether it's thinking about who God is and making sure my mind adjusts to it and stays adjusted to it, or whether it's the things that he said that I must do, I I need to make sure that I respond very carefully to that. I've got to thoughtfully say, well, if God has said this, then I have no right to, to say differently. I have no right to adapt it or to somehow make it my own by tailoring it or curtailing it. I need to, let's put it this way, number three, I need to carefully respond to God's self-revelation. God's self-disclosure of God saying, this is who I am. This is what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. Now think about all of those things he testifies to in the giving of the law and the giving of this worship center carefully. People don't like to live the Christian life carefully. God loves me. It's fine. Everything's cool. We've talked about this throughout this series. The idea of the fact that when God speaks, we need to be Here's an old translation in English of some New Testament phrases. We need to be circumspect as we walk in this world. Walk circumspectly. What does that mean? I, I should be very careful about where my next step is. Before I take another step, I should be very thoughtful about it. Well, I don't live that way. It sounds like a scary way to live. Well, that, that is part of what it is to be a Christian. The one you call on as father, he's also a judge. And so we ought to live our lives in fear during our stay, our sojourning on this earth. So I'm going to walk from here next weekend, and we're going to go through our lives, and we ought to be very careful about God's self-disclosure, not only about who he is, but what he's asked us to do, and what he's asked us to be, and how he asks us to act, and how he asks us to prioritize our lives. Christianity is a revealed religion, right? It's God disclosing what he wants us to know. I mean, that's what revelation is, right? Things that wouldn't otherwise be known about God. God is saying, I'm going to tell you about myself. These are going to be things that you must rightly respond to. Aaron, of course, was his first priest, and he has sons, and those sons say, Well, that's cool, I want to do this thing, and so that's fine, and they got all the regalia, they went through all the, 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 the ceremonies of being sanctified as priests, and then they get out there and say, Well, I'm gonna do this just a little bit different, let's tailor it and do it my way. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, remember the story? And they, they they burned on the altar something that the Bible calls strange fire. It's not quite right. And remember what God did gave him a promotion. That was awesome. You improved on my revelation. You struck him down. Maybe you missed this because it's just a short little verse, but Moses then talks to Aaron. Now remember, these are his nephews. And he says, listen, God just knocked our family members down. Just killed your sons. I don't know what it would be like to have both of your sons die in the course of their work trying to serve the Lord. And yeah, they didn't do it quite right, but I mean, come on, that's kind of harsh. And Moses talks to Aaron and goes, you just need to understand, you no know, one's going to draw near to God and, and do it non-circumspectly, to use the words we've, we've just brought up. You better be super careful about these steps. And, and it's interesting, the last part of that verse says, and Aaron held his peace, which shows that must've been hard to do, right? It's like, ugh, I, I want to be mad. Like David, when the, the ox cart stumbled and he had a guy that he really respected and he ran out to touch the ark and he died. And David got mad. He was frustrated. You can see Aaron being angry at that. You can see the early church, if you're friends with two people, maybe you're, I don't know, Scrabble couples with Ananias and Sapphira, and now they're dead. Like, man, I don't, I don't know if I like this Christianity thing. There's no difference in the God of the Old Testament God of the New Testament. And when we studied that passage in Acts 5, what did we say? We're really thankful that we haven't been struck dead because we could have multiple times over and over. But it was a reminder to the church, wasn't it? my revealed will, you need to do it, right? Whether it's how you approach worship in this scene in the Old Testament or whether it's how you tell the truth when you're speaking to one another, you better carefully respond to what God has said. Not only to think rightly about God, theology proper, but to think rightly about how we live, practical theology. How do we, how do we live this out? I know the reputation sometimes of, of our church or me or I don't know what, but is it we're, we're the doom and gloom church, you know? Bible thumpers, you do understand, no one's trying to harsh your life out. We're just trying to be faithful to what God has said about himself. And, and I let me end with this passage, and I didn't plan this either, but whatever. <laughs> let's, let's go to Hebrews 12. <laughs> Probably not a good line for any sermon. But I, I just want us by way of comparison, because that's what we're doing. We're comparing something 2000 years ago and how they thought about the temple and we're even going back to 3400 years ago in the wilderness and the you know, Nadab and Abihu scene and we're like, okay, what about now? The comparison in this passage is one that should, not only as this text says, bring us a, a kind of, of trepidation about be careful, but a real profound kind of, of, of gratitude Matter of fact, look at the first three adverbs in, in all the points this morning. Humbly, gratefully, carefully. I mean, those can all fit together and still be a joyful, peace-filled Christian life. But that's got to be our approach. Drop down to the 18th verse of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. They had something very tangible, tangible, very tactile. Something they could smell and they could see. And it started there at Mount Sinai, for you've not come to what may be touched. It's different in the New Testament, right? Spirit and truth a different We're not going to a temple. We're not sacrificing animals. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, a the storm there on Mount Sinai, the sound of a trumpet and a voice of the words that made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken. To them. remember that in Exodus, we don't want to hear it. You go up and talk to him for us, Moses. For they could not endure the order that was given them and stuff like, man, this is really hard. Like if a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned to death. I don't like it. It's too restrictive and too many warning signs and too much razor wire and barbed wire. Indeed, so terrifying, verse 21, was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. Well, that was rough. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you've come to something else, something that transcends that, Mount Zion. Right at that tabernacle and that temple, that might have been the Lord's footstool, but you've come right into where God really lives. You have a real relationship with the real God to Mount Zion. That was kind of the spiritualized word that kicked in when we're talking about the thing that Jerusalem and the temple represented. You've come there. You have a relationship with the God who dwells in an approachable light. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Right? You have that connection with that scene that's spelled out in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, a real living room of God, the dwelling place of God, whatever that is, that invisible place, but it's mind-boggling and you've come there, you have a relationship with that God. The heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly one, you've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn, Christ himself, who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and the spirit of of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator. The only way we can get in is because the high priest has gone in and made a way for us, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Think about that. Sprinkled blood, that was all a part of the ceremony with the hyssop branch and the blood all over the altar that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, death, usually, people like, who killed him? I want to kill them. I mean, it's not... Abel dies, right? And Cain's concerned about retribution. Well, Christ dies and no longer are we concerned about retribution. It's just amazing. Of course, it's better than the blood of Abel, which it brought up earlier in the writings here in Hebrews. So what do we do? Well, number one, if you're non-Christian here today, see to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. If you're feeling convicted about the truth of Christianity, well, then you ought to respond. You ought to repent. You ought to put your trust in Christ. You ought to throw yourself on the mercy of God. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? The comparison, right? The comparison of lesser to greater. This Mount Sinai was amazing, but this is way more, way more clear, way more serious, way more heavy. Verse 26, at that time, back then in the Old Testament, his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised, right? We read this in 2 Peter 3. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, earthly things, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. They can destroy all of the temple and Titus can burn it and desecrate it and and it can be gone. Just like Nebuchadnezzar did, it can be done. Just like Antiochus did in the intertestamental time, you could do a lot of damage to that place. But you can't do anything to the place where God dwells. And God right now is dwelling in his church and in his people. Therefore, verse 28, let us be, that's the whole point here, right? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You see that? Why? Because God, our God is a consuming fire. One who is in his own plan, redemptive plan, taking the hit for our sin. I think we can live humbly, gratefully, and carefully, right? And we ought to. You world travelers have probably been to some pretty nice places. You go to certain countries, certain parts of the world and take your cameras or you get your phone out and you start snapping pictures, particularly of these like, massive buildings. It might be a, a Shinto temple in Japan or a Buddhist temple in, in India. Maybe some massive cathedral in Europe. Some kind of uh, elaborate, ornate mosque in Istanbul, and you go to these places and you pull out your camera and you, you see it and you are impressed by the architecture and you can smell the candles and the incense and it's just like, wow, this is, this is an important place. With the coming and reality of Christ and all that we just read there in Hebrews 12, you, the, the shift to what is, is real and transcendent and important, it's not going to be bound up in smells and sights and chants and people bowing down and, and shaved heads and robes. and I mean, the reality of this is found in the sacred space of your kitchen table, of your desk at work, of the front seat of your car in the parking lot at lunch with a Bible and a prayer list. Be found in a, in a chair in a tilt-up building in South Orange County. The reality of God saying to us, you can come into the throne room and find grace to help in the time of need. You can ride in, as Hebrews 6 says, on the coattails of the, of the great high priest and you can enter in and have an anchor for the soul and you know that God is good on his promises because he's entered in behind the curtain and, and we're there too. We have access. And if you feel left out, you think, wow, this should be a much better experience as a Christian than it is. I'm just saying, I, I, I want to admit to you, it's, it's, I don't have an overrealized sense of where it's going. We're not there yet right? We're getting to the place where the dwelling of God is going to be among men. But, but now there is something good and sacred. And, and any building, any architectural thing, anything that seems like impressive, it, it, it never is that conduit to God. Those are not, that is not it. God is a God who has found his people as his dwelling place. And I hope you're one of the bricks, one of the stones that have been placed into this thing where God is active and where God is working. And it ought to lead to a humble, grateful, careful kind of life that should fuel your worship this week. And I hope
1: that it does. You're listening to Focal Point Point, and the conclusion of a message from Pastor Mike Fabares called The Places of Worship for Israel. We're discovering how the stories in the Old Testament can help us today. And if you're just joining us now and you want to hear the previous messages, you can find the entire series called Gospel Lessons from the Old Testament online at focalpointradio.org. Well, most of us are pretty familiar with well-known stories from the Old Testament. But how well do you really know what these stories mean? There are lots of popular misconceptions floating around, and sometimes even well-read Christians can get mixed up. So to help you get clarity, Pastor Mike has selected an excellent resource titled The Most Misused Stories in the Bible, Surprising Ways Popular Bible Stories Are Misunderstood by Eric Bargerhoff. Find out the life-changing truths in stories such as David and Goliath, Jonah and the Big Fish, the Woman Caught in Adultery, Gideon and His Fleece, Judas the Betrayer, and more. And this is the last day to request this special resource, so contact us right away to ask for your copy when you give generously to support Focal Point. It's easy to give when you call us at 888 or you can give online at focalpointradio.org. And don't forget to request The Most Misused Stories in the Bible. Well, we're glad you've joined us today, and we hope you've benefited from listening to Pastor Mike deliver the truth of the Bible without watering it down or shying away from hard truths. But we need your help to keep these messages on the air in your community and across the country. So to give to Focal Point, just call 888 320 That's 888-320-5885. Or go online to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Druy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for the next message in this series from Pastor Mike called The Pushback Against the Messengers. That's coming up Wednesday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here.
0: I pray today's message will help you live out your faith with truth and love. After all, that's the kind of biblical faith that changes lives and transforms a crooked culture. But if you haven't truly surrendered your life to Christ, then I'd like to invite you to get in touch. We'd love to pray with you and help
1: you discover God's plan of salvation. Visit focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.